The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. I do have a talk for tonight, but I wanted to start with a couple of things before that. Uh, one is I want to I know we've been uh, practicing with loving kindness for the last month or so, and so would like to make a little room at the beginning in case there are questions that are floating around. Um, actually, the talk tonight arose out of a question that John asked last week. Um, but before that, I want to read to you, last. if you were here last week, our group... Um, uh, proposed some phrases for the loving-kindness practice. And I asked you if you felt so inclined to send them to me and I would put them together into a bit of a meditation or poem, whatever we want to call it. And so I did that. It's posted online if you would like your own copy, but I want to read it to you and congratulate you and say thank you for everyone. Uh, we had quite a few. It's this long. We had quite a few responses. And the only thing I intended to change uh, was the uh, cadence and or the pronouns of the, uh, of the language. So if I've eliminated your, uh, your statement, it wasn't, please forgive me, it wasn't on purpose. It just got lost in my head or in my uh, uh, computer someplace. So here's what we, uh, here's what you wrote together. It's really quite fun. I, and I must say, I had a, an incredible amount of fun putting it together. It was, it was even more fun than I imagined. So this is loving kindness, uh, our loving kindness practice. May we be filled with loving kindness. May we be well. May we be peaceful and at ease. May we be happy. Planting seeds in the garden this spring, may we be happy. May we awake into freedom as we dig and water and weed and watch things grow. May we open our minds and outstretched arms and grateful hearts to the yellow forsythia as it flashes its friendly high beams of joy. May all who work in the soil and who bring food to our tables, may they be safe and free from danger. May we all notice and receive the radiant warmth of the sun and its changing shadows. And the deer who just ate all of my new daylilies, may they be nourished and happy too. May they not notice the rosebush just pushing out its first little leaves. <laughs> may all beings be joyful and nourished. May all pets, dogs and cats, guinea pigs, hamsters and parakeets, all beings who live in land and sea, may they have a safe home and be well-loved and nourished. May the mice that my cat is stalking slip away quietly and be free to raise her babies in peace. May all wild animals, bears and wolves, cheetahs, giraffes and elephants, koalas and kangaroos, rabbits and woodchucks enjoy rain, shelter and nourishment. May all bus drivers and train conductors, pilots and taxi drivers be safe and free from danger. May all beings who ride or fly with them be protected and happy. 
May they arrive at home in the arms of their loved ones, protected and unharmed. May we find joy and patience as we wait for the third change of a traffic light. May the immigrant and refugees be safe and be welcomed by their neighbors into their new homelands. May all public servants, all police and emergency teams, all teachers and healthcare professionals be appreciated and safe. May they be wise and discerning and patience and filled with kindness. May all who serve be safe and protected recipients of justice and compassion and healing. May all who they serve be safe and protected recipients of justice and compassion and healing. May all politicians and journalists, all kings and queens, be filled with goodness and wisdom. May all who vote for them and serve them be prudent and sane. May they lean into happiness, civil discourse, and kindness and justice for all. May we be filled with universal blessing for the Nigerian who so much wants to send us money. May the addicts and homeless, the people sleeping in doorways and on a few feet of cold ground, those panhandling with signs who stand next to me as I wait in my car, may they be well. May those who walk down the mall whose minds have slipped away, young and old, male and female, may they be safe. May they have a chance, a respite and freedom from pain. May their feet and hearts be warmed with socks and shelter and care and rest. May the young person or old person who makes a grave or foolish mistake have as many second chances as it takes to find their right path. May those who are certain be blessed with the gift of uncertainty. May those who are fearful learn to be brave and trusting. May those who hurt feel the balm of love and forgiveness. May the bully realize they'd rather be a friend. May we see ourselves along with our brothers and sisters with kindness and care. May we pause during the busyness of our lives. May we all offer prayers to one another like individual fragrant flowers tumbling down. May we be filled with overflowing light. May we be held and rocked by the universe. May our minds be clear and still like a singing bowl's last wave. May we receive joy from the small moments of simple awareness. May we delight in peaceful silence and in its passing. May all beings everywhere be filled with loving kindness. May we be well. May we be peaceful and at ease. May we be happy. So yay. <laughs> you did that. <laughs> Thank you. That was great fun. So again, um, Judy has posted it, um, and you are welcome to download it. Um, so before I talk a little bit, just wanted to make a room. Are there any roaming questions around the loving kindness practice that we've been doing that you'd like to ask before we start? Anything that's nothing too urgent. Someone asked, so I'll go ahead and talk in response to the question that was asked last week um, uh, after uh, we ended the uh, um, 
someone asked a question about the word wishing and you know what, what, do, what do we mean by wishing and what do we mean by prayer and what do we mean by even offering a loving kindness what offering prayer or even our blessing bowl our you know our if you will our our prayer basket what, what, you know do buddhists pray and if so what you know what 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 is that what are we what are we doing when we're doing that so um I thought I'd talk about that just a little bit um, because the words themselves and the uh, practices can be a little a little confusing. Uh, we don't know if we're you know wishing, are we wanting, are we trying to impose something, are we aspiring, are we invoking, are we intending, are we imploring, are we trying to improve ourselves, are we trying to improve others? What is it that we're what is it that we're doing here in these in this practice? Um, so uh, the question, are we praying? Are we praying? And uh, the answer that I've written in my notes is no, yes, and it depends. Um, so it's a kind of typical Buddhist response, isn't it? You know, are we praying? I want to come back to praying, but I thought I'd start with that word wishing because in, in the, uh, one of the translations of the Metta Sutta, uh, the word wishing, so wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be well. And part of the question was, well, what do we mean by, you know, wishing? What, is, what, is, what does wishing mean? Um, in the dictionary, wishing is defined as to feel or express a strong desire or hope for something that is not easily attainable, to want something that cannot or probably will not happen. Um, and it is kind of what we think of when we think of the word wishing. And I was remembering a friend from really quite a long time ago um, who uh, was about to be married. And um, she appeared not to particularly like the man she was marrying, nor by her reports did it appear that he particularly liked her. But she was really eager, she had had a very difficult life, and she was really eager for things to kind of settle down, you know, to be like, okay, you know, I'm married, I've got life, it's organized. And she was rather preoccupied with that um, little song, that little jingle of, you know, when you wish upon a star makes no difference who you are. Uh, when you're, what is it? Um, Anything your heart desires will come to you. Is how, and she used to sing it to me, you know, when wish upon a star. And, you know, and it was really sort of the attitude with which she was approaching her marriage. You know, like if you wish hard enough, if you wish upon a star hard enough, you know, anything you want, the song says, anything your heart desires will come to you. This sort of um, aimless, if you will, undirected wishing. So um, that isn't really what the translator or what the Buddha meant when, uh, when in using the word wishing. Um, wishing in the Metta Sutta uh, means more like an opening of our hearts. Opening our minds and hearts, sort of like the, um, the turning of a flower my daffodils are all turned in one direction. 
you know, the turning of a flower, um, the opening of our hearts. Um, and indeed, um, in many of the translations, that word mi uh, wishing is, um, is not used. It just is sort of, uh, it, it, the, the sutta goes on to simply say, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be well. Um, or cultivating, uh, the word wishing means then she should cultivate a heart and mind thus. May all beings be well. So it has more to do, that word wishing in the metta sutta really has more to do with the sense of um, here's the turning that we are inviting ourselves to activate in our own minds and hearts. So it isn't wishing upon a star in the same way that my friend, who I would guess is probably not still married, um, that, that it really was a, sort of an empty kind of, uh, of wish that also sort of assumed that what she wanted or what one wants is sort of outside of the realm of my own, my own being, my own efforts, my own uh, inclinations. Um, that it just sort of is sort of this sort of thing that just sort of drops down from fairies or something like that. Um, so the, the, the practice is really about our own inclinations, our own turnings. And even then when we think about that, we can also get a little confused because we can, as soon as we start turning, you know, as soon as we start practicing with this loving kindness practice, we can notice the ways that we're kind of encumbered, if you will, by our own obscurations, uh, by the, the ways that, you know, we're not really quite sure that we're intending or turning in a quote, kind of pure way. In some of, the, um, some of the phrases in the loving kindness practice that we kind of giggled at really kind of lean in that direction. They kind of point, they kind of notice that actually, you know, when I'm wishing that the deer are, are, are uh, happy and safe, even after they've eaten all the daylilies, that, you know, maybe that's a bit of an inclination and not fully accomplished yet. Um, in my, my own mind and heart. So it's sort of an inclination or a turning toward. Um, which brings us to praying. Uh, are we praying? Do Buddhists pray? And what are we doing when we're doing this blessing bowl? What are, you know, what, what's happening? Is this a prayer in which we, in which we ask that we, or maybe others, um, be saved? from themselves or from ourselves, you know, that we uh, somehow be better than uh, we or they are. And if so, who or what are we praying to? Who are we directing this to? Again, I turn to the dictionary. Prayer is defined in the dictionary as a solemn request for help or expression of thanks addressed to God or an object of worship. Okay. And it's probably for many of us um, a notion of prayer that we grew up with. It certainly is for me as I grew up a very good, diligent Catholic girl um, uh, who um, actually prayed in that way. A solemn 
request for help or an expression of thanks addressed to God or an object of worship. And in our own practice, in our Buddhist practice, no, we are not wishing or even praying in that sense. And that can be kind of an interesting inquiry for us. I actually, I was telling somebody, I, many of you know I belong to the clergy collective. Um, and um, very often we will, or almost always, we'll start our meetings with a prayer. And I live in terror that they're going to ask me to start, <laughs> to start the meetings um, uh, with a prayer. I certainly can do a prayer, uh, but it would be a very different kind of prayer. Because sometimes we start with, and somebody asked me how I navigate those, and I said, oh, it's easy, I just translate it. You know, I just, just translate the kinds of prayers that I, that I uh, was used to as a little girl and as a young woman. Buddhism is somewhat unique in that our liberation does not depend on some blessing of a personal God, something or someone outside of ourselves. Liberation, the Buddha teaches, is much more personal and much more immediate. Always available to all. Always. And dependent only on our own inquiry, our practice, our investigation, our own efforts. Much more imminent, much more immediate. So again, it sort of leans us, turns us back in this direction of prayer as an opening and a turning toward and an inquiry into rather than a beseeching of something, you know, some star, some fairy, some god uh, outside of ourselves. Um, so if we think of prayer, so the answer is prayer, you know, are we praying? The answer could be yes. If we think of prayer as to ground and center ourselves mentally, physically, spiritually in something that is inherent in our own being and also beyond our conceptual mind. I came across a, a, a definition that Anne Lamott, uh, who is the novelist, uh, offered about prayer, and I like it. She says, prayer is communication from the heart to that which surpasses understanding. You know? So in that sense, yes, we pray. Communication from the heart to this mystery that is beyond our conceptual understanding and at the same time is completely imminent and completely available to us each. And uh, the title of the talk uh, uh, is Tuning the Lute, and many of you know I love that, that sutta of the Buddhas. And so I think of, even though this isn't quite, this isn't really quite what the Buddha was talking about in that sutta, I made it up anyway. Um, I think of tuning ourselves the way one might tune a musical instrument, and that we're praying in that sense. Uh, um, that we, you know, in the sense of you know, I imagine I don't know anything at all about tuning a piano, but, you know, I, I've heard people do that, and they kind of, you know, and then they kind of either have an ear for it or have something else that is already tuned. And kind of um, 
tuning two things so that they're resonating together. So the Buddha um, taught Sona, who was a, um, a musician before he became a monastic. Actually, the, the actual sutta is about wise effort. And um, he, he was actually a very wealthy man and uh, a musician and very accomplished. And he decided to become a monastic. And he kind of threw himself into it and was working so hard at it that he had blisters and bleeding on his feet. He was walking, he was doing so much walking practice, walking meditation. And he came to the Buddha and he says, how come I'm not getting liberated? You know, what's going on? And the Buddha said, again, the middle path. He said, you need to tune. He said, when you were a musician, you know, didn't you tune your lute? Didn't you kind of look to see when the strings were too tight or when they were too loose? Um, and so you, you, you learned how to tune it so that it could play beautiful music. And in that sense, that's really what we're doing when we're offering these loving kindness practices. We're really working with our own hearts, working with tuning our own minds and hearts in ways that uh, um, lead to freedom from suffering. And this is Sona at the, um, after he actually became enlightened. He followed the Buddha's instruction and he became enlightened. And he came back to the Buddha and he said, you know, you're all right. He says, it's because of the ending of passion, you know, because of the ending of that kind of needing things to be some particular way. Because of the ending of aversion, the kind of needing things to not be some particular way. Because of uh, his being free of aversion, because of the ending of delusion, you know, just seeing clearly what was. Um, he said that um, th that that practice that I've done is what has led me to liberation. I can now see clearly. My heart and my mind are liberated, are free. You know, I've not, I've, I've kind of ended this sense of clinging or grasping, pushing or pulling or trying to get something to be some particular way, but I've sort of tuned into the teachings and gotten this, this clarity, which has led to liberation. He's, this is Sona speaking. He says, just as if there were a mountain of rock without cracks, without fissures, one solid mass, and then from the east there were, to be, there were to come a powerful storm of wind and rain. The mountain would neither shiver, nor quiver, nor shake. And then from the west, and from the north, and from the south, there were to come a powerful storm of wind and rain. The mountain would neither shiver, nor quiver, nor shake. And so this sense that really this practice is about cultivating a mind and heart that is so steeped in loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity that these storms cannot shake us, um, that we can, we can navigate um, with some freedom not because it is bestowed on us from a God who rewards us for behaving according to his rules, but because we are tuned properly to who we actually are.
we're tuned properly to who we actually are. And indeed, to who all beings, even the deer that eat the daylilies, to, all, to who all beings actually are beneath all of the obscurations, all of the clutter, all of the confusion that makes it hard to see. Um, this is who we are, the Buddha teaches. This is why we practice. To kind of gently over time um, be kind of clearing away the obscurations. I actually like to wash the dishes. I think I've said that before. It's a nice task. But I often, and not but, I often am aware as I'm kind of scrubbing the pot or cleaning off the plate that's been sitting in the sink too long, you know, that it's like clearing off those obscurations. May my own, may other beings' obscurations, cloudedness, be released. You know, this little bit, little little black speck. You know, little one little black speck at a time. This is Sharon Salzberg. She says spiritual practice by uprooting our personal mythologies of isolation uncovers the radiant, joyful heart within each of us and manifests this radiance to the world. That's what we're about when we're doing this kind of a practice and indeed any kind of a practice. And the, the Buddha spoke of this in so many, way, in so many ways. There's so many images uh, of cultivating and opening into this mind and heart of goodwill larger than anything that the world throws at us, larger than any struggles, internal or external, larger than any obscurations, internal or external. And um, I read to you, and I know Susan read to you, you're going to be sick of hearing it, the Sutta where the Buddha says, suppose a man were to drop salt into, um, into a cup. He said, uh, you know, what do you think? Would the water in the cup become salty? And he says, yeah, the water would become salty. And the Buddha says, okay, so what if you dropped the same amount of salt into the river Ganges? Would, would that water become salty? Well, no, um, because the, the, the spaciousness, the expanse around the exact same thing is big enough that it's not really contaminated, it's not really affected. So when we're doing these practices, we're actually cultivating a bound, you know, in the Metta Sutta, the word is a boundless heart, you know. We're cultivating a boundless heart, but it's not some boundless heart that's out there hanging on a star. It's a boundless heart that's already here and that we actually do periodically have flashes of insight into that, don't we? You know, Where we periodically see into our own boundless heart um, and we're cultivating the capacity to see that more reliably um, and um, uh, more continually. Um, there's a quote, it's a fairly long quote here from my two uh, favorite teachers these days, um, uh, Kitasaro and Tanisara. They're a married couple who teach together. 
Um, and uh, they wrote this chapter together, so it's both of them. And they say, this is ultimately calling on our deepest nature. We are not apart from the profound intention of kindness and compassion within life itself. Mantra practice, infused with this intention, expands and uplifts the heart. Each turn of the mantra weaves us into the seamlessness of life. We get a sense of context, an ocean of loving awareness within which all suffering is dispelled. This is very different from being caught as an isolated self, struggling like mad. When we're really despairing, we're in a narrow, painful, and lonely place. In such times when our sword of wisdom is blunt, when all the mindfulness we can muster just doesn't do it, and when we find ourselves in a swirl that pulls us down, this prayerful practice comes to the rescue. It connects to faith. It steadies the mind on the heart. Actually, the heart never has the problem, just the mind. The heart already has within it the faith to trust. While this intention is innate to the heart, it is also cultivated as a practice. Prayer as a deliberate practice invokes a greater sense of holding than is possible when the mind is caught up in me trying to get somewhere. It takes us to the place where everything is okay, even if it's not okay. To hold a prayerful intention with regard to the world has power. We are tapping into the deepest aspect of awareness which is alive, responsive, and intelligent. We offer the situation into a unified field of listening that doesn't split the universe into separate pieces, but holds it all. It includes loved ones as well as enemies, our hopes as well as our fears, our deepest pains and our greatest challenges. By listening in a prayerful, humble, and open way, we are guided by the undivided heart. It is from such a heart that optimum solutions and intuitive insights can arise in support of the greater welfare of the whole. I'm skipping over something. Um, so we open then to the mystery and the spaciousness that is beyond our conceptual understanding. That is just a gift that's available to all. We often don't understand. I'll tell you a story about not understanding. You've probably heard it before. There are these two guys sitting together in a bar in the remote Alaskan wilderness. One of the guys is religious, the other is an atheist, and the two are arguing about the existence of God with that special intensity that comes after about the fourth beer. And the atheist says, look, it's not like I don't have actual reasons for not believing in God. It's not like I haven't ever experimented with the whole God and prayer thing. 
Just last month, I got caught away from the camp in that terrible blizzard, and I was totally lost, and I couldn't see a thing. And it was 50 below, and so I tried it. I fell to my knees in the snow and cried out, Oh God, if there is a God, I'm lost in this blizzard, and I'm going to die if you don't help me. And now, in the bar, the religious guy looks at the atheist, all puzzled. Well, then you must believe now, he says. After all, here you are, alive. The atheist just rolls his eyes. No, man, all that, wa all that was a couple of Eskimos happened to come wandering by and showed me the way back to camp. <laughs> so the incredible mystery that we miss, that we overlook, because our eyes and minds and hearts are obscured. Many of you have heard me talk many times about this, the touching into that incredible mystery as I uh, lived with my mother through her dying of dementia, you know, where, where there were moments where everything, everything parted. All the obscurations just parted. So prayer can be an especially challenging word and concept, especially to us Westerners. It can bring up a sense of control by outside dogmatism or a mindless and thoughtless allegiance to something. Um, devotion, however, is a practice of deep listening to the mystery and the grace of life and to the deepest intention of the heart that recognizes this mystery, that recognizes it. We recognize it when we see it. We recognize it and longs to return to it. Longs to return to that mystery. Is allowing ourselves to soften our reliance on our own ego. Dare I say, let go and be available to receive an opening into grace. I know I... I know, or I think I know, there also was a question about resting in mindfulness. You know, when we're doing this, you know, what about our practice, which is sort of like you just sort of are aware in mindfulness and you don't, and you just sort of watch what, what happens. And is there some contradiction here about actively <clears throat> offering this loving kindness practice or compassion practice? Is there some contradiction between that in the teaching around resting and, and mindfulness. Um, we could misunderstand the Buddhist teachings um, and our teachings if, if we think of it that way. It's really not what the teachings are about. Remember, um, we've read to you the Sutta where the Buddha says, he says, abandon what is unskillful. If, um, if you weren't uh, capable of doing that, I wouldn't be teaching you, I wouldn't invite you. Cultivate what is skillful. If you weren't capable of doing that, I wouldn't be teaching you to. The difference is that we're not kind of thinking up something um, that is that we're supposed to be or we're supposed to do. As we sit with our practice and we see what is, the investigation, which is the second factor of awakening, Mindfulness is the first. The second factor of awakening is investigation. It enables us to look and see what's skillful here. 
when I'm sitting at that red light for the third time. What's skillful? As I notice my own, maybe my own irritation or my own whatever, um, or my own ease, you know, can I, can I notice my own experience and then look to see what is skillful? Am I talking to myself in a way that doesn't help anything? Am I, am I having thoughts that actually can lead to less suffering for myself and for other beings as well? So the second factor of awakening, we're sort of getting stuck on the first factor, the second factor of awakening is investigation and allowing ourselves to simply see what is skillful, which is different from kind of having a whole bunch of rules on the refrigerator and thinking up what we're supposed to be like. Because in one moment, what skillful might be this, and in another moment, what skillful might be its opposite, depending on you know, all kinds of circumstances. So we're not practicing so we can fix ourselves according to some kind of standard, um, but rather so that we can identify and learn to let go of an obscuration. So we, you know, it's like when you're washing the dishes, that you see an obscuration. You, you, know, you, you, you know an obscuration when you see it. And you know, you know, okay, how, you know, how, how can I be with this? What can I do with this? Sang Sun, who's a Korean uh, master, says, all things are teaching you at every moment. At every single moment, even this one, all things are teaching you. All things are teaching you. And so to be willing to rest in the moment, tuning the lute every moment, looking to see what's skillful, you know, when am I in tune? This is Ken Wilbur. Um, Essentially, what one is awakening from is the ceaseless, chaotic, incoherent thoughts and ways of framing reality that govern most human activity, generating endless states of suffering. You know, whether it's ourselves, you know, our own minds or others or our own actions or others. So what one is awakening from is the ceaseless, incoherent mix of all of that. Um, and what was, one is awakening to is a pure, transparent, open, empty, clear awareness, free of incoherent and broken thoughts and frameworks that the Buddha teaches is available imminently right here, right now, to each of us, always, in every moment. So the invitation that arises in our loving kindness practice is one of curiosity. And to some extent, faith in the practice itself. Uh, Openness, uh, a diligent and kind and a very personal inquiry into tuning the lute. Tuning the lute. Or in another metaphor that also works for me is priming the pump, you know. We used to, apparently we don't have to prime too many pumps anymore. But, um, you know, the idea of needing to, to prime a pump, to, to, to pour water into it so that it can, it can actually function. Um, 
So in our practice, it's really, it's really more like priming the, punt, the pump or tuning the lute. It's also a practice of magic. It's also a practice of magic, of being willing to allow ourselves to enter into receiving. To allow ourselves to be guided by beings seen and unseen, by energies seen and unseen, into being surprised. What is this? This experience I'm having. Where's suffering? Where's wholeness and freedom? Here, now, with this. What is mine to do? What is a response of wisdom? What is a response of universal kindness and love to myself, to other beings? What is mine to do? We release, we give away whatever we are holding onto that blocks kindness and peace. Our patterns, our disguises, our complaints, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and others. We just, we give it away. We let ourselves open and allow ourselves to be touched. We allow an experience of coming into this moment, this one right now, and simply receive it. Respond to it with flexibility and warmth. We learn to know and experience what truly heals. Presence, inquiry, gratitude, tenderness, wisdom, diligence, energy. What truly heals. We learn to restrain harmful, impulsive, unskillful, deeply conditioned patterns of body, speech, and mind, not because they are bad or wrong, but because they lead to sorrow, confusion, distraction, suffering. They lead to a lute that's not tuned. It squeaks. It doesn't work very well. We learn to pause and befriend our own wounds and conditioning, as from uh, uh, Christina Feldman, and the wounds and conditioning of others, learning to welcome our shadow and demons and those of others, and find a way of being in which they no longer imprison or compel us, a way of being that's larger than that. This is Andy Olinsky. He says, accessing, accessing what is good for you, implementing what is beneficial, accomplishing the noble purpose for which you aspire, achieving your wholesome goals. These can all be synonymous phrases involving a skill that can be learned. He's talking about the Metta Sutta. He, this is in his commentary on the Metta Sutta. The text is telling us that whether or not we are able to experience that peaceful state is not just a matter of chance, nor is it dependent on the will of another 
or the benevolence of a deity. Rather, it is something we can learn how to cultivate, learn how to practice for ourselves. And I'll close again with a quote from Anne Lamont. Prayer is communication from the heart to that which surpasses understanding. So if you go home and you read our, our uh, group loving kindness practice and maybe download it, you know, read it with that in mind. Prayer is communication from the heart to that which surpasses understanding. So we'll have um, two more months, or three, three more months actually, of working with these uh, states of mind and heart in um, I think it's next week. Um, Teresa will talk, will bring us a, 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 some w wisdom about compassion and then Jeff will do some practices with us. So uh, blessings. Thank you.